Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History. We are back for a brand new season. We've got lots of great stuff coming up this year. Um, I'm really excited. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for subscribing if you're one of our premium listeners. Thank you very much. We've got some great bonus content coming up this year as well. So if you have not subscribed through Acast Plus, please consider doing that and joining that team for extra bonus content. As I said, we've got great stuff coming up this season and I wanted to kick it off with something that's quite timely. Uh, It's uh, because Masters of the Air, the very long-awaited series from Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks about World War II, is now streaming on Apple TV Plus. And so I wanted to talk about that chapter of history, the uh, the American contribution to strategic bombing and find out the real story behind Masters of the Air. And joining us to do that is someone who I think, I'm, I'm always baffled how much you know about the Second World War, John. It's it's John McManus coming to us from uh, from Missouri in the US. John, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, it's a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, John, your name and your voice would be very familiar to people who listen to the We Have Ways of Making You Talk podcast. Uh, with James Holland and Al Murray. And I was fortunate to meet you and uh, do a presentation with you at the We Have Ways Festival uh, last year. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do over there and uh, and uh, and your extensive knowledge of the Second World War. Yeah, so uh, I am a uh, military history professor at uh, Missouri S&T, which is part of the University of Missouri system, public university. And um, my primary area of interest and in research tends to focus on uh, U.S. military history from World War II through the present, and in particular, the combat experience. Um, certainly, the ground combat experience has animated a lot of my work over the years, but also I've delved into the aviation combat experience. Uh, I did a book called Deadly Sky, the American Combat Airman in, in World War II, uh, which really looked very much at not just the 8th Air Force, but the whole combat crew and, and fighter pilot experience throughout uh, all of World War II for the Americans. But But as you can imagine, just the reality of what the uh, the Army Air Forces uh, were, were facing. A lot of the the people were, were going to, to England. The Eighth Air Force was sort of the dominant um, uh, aerial unit of the war. The bomber crew experience too, you know, obviously is just uh, just horrendous on many levels. You know, in terms of the casualties and all that. So, um, so it's you know, as far as my work, uh, it, it has tended to focus on World War II, though not exclusively. Um, and, and very much the, the combat experience. I teach courses um, designed somewhere around that. I teach one on American military history, one in the U.S. and World War II, uh, U.S. and Vietnam. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a variety in that regard. And also another one I designed called Grunts, which is about uh, the American ground combat experience in World War II through as close to the present as I can ever get it. Fantastic. Well, I think um, the reason I really like these uh, these movies and these miniseries like Masters of the Air 
is it does shine a light on a very specific chapter of military history. And I think what we'll find now that this miniseries has come out is that there'll be a lot of people interested in this, uh, the concept of what the, um, you know, the Army Air Forces did over there and that the American contribution. A lot of our listeners are from Britain and Australia. We do have a, a good number of American listeners as well, but we also have that strong contingent from the former British Empire. Uh, so I think a lot of people would have an understanding of, of what the RAF did. Um, but probably less understanding of exactly the you know the U.S. contribution. So that's what I'd like to talk about today: mm-hmm. the true history behind uh, you know uh, behind Masters of the Air and, and a little bit of the true story. I think let's kick off though. I mean, this is a piece of entertainment. This is not supposed to be a documentary. Um, you've seen, I assume, the first at least the first couple of episodes. I've only seen the mm-hmm. first episode, which I watched recently. Um, what did you think about it as a piece of entertainment? Oh, let me say at the outset as well, we're going to try not to do spoilers here. We're going to yeah, assume right. that people haven't seen it. <laughs> sure. uh, so we'll try not to do too many spoilers. We'll just use it as a backstory for the real history. Um, background screen or two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so let's start with that. What did you think of Masters of the Air as a piece of entertainment in terms of the casting, you know, the CGI, obviously there's a lot of special effects of aircraft in the sky. What did you think of it as a, as a, as a TV program? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I just want to say, that I think Don's book is brilliant. Um, it's just a masterpiece uh, on so many levels, uh, especially, you know, having written a book about the aviation combat experience, uh, I was really impressed with the sort of depth of uh, sort of the topical depth that he had uh, of looking at the, uh, uh, the, the combat bomber experience, from the strategic point of view of the, of the generals and the overall context of the war, the German point of view, and obviously the the aerial the air crewman point of view, which is the ultimate nut of it, but also the ground crews and and sort of um, I mean it's such a massive topic. The book could have gone on for thousands of pages, you know. So <laughs> it was amazing how he I thought captured the essence of it all in a kind of anecdotal fashion almost, and and really does lend to a mini series because there are major people who who you know, what we'll call characters, I guess they're real people, of course, uh, like Gail Clevin or, or uh, Egan or, or Brosie or whoever, um, who, who kind of stand out and who stood out for Don, I think, in, in terms of getting to know these folks and, and telling their story as emblematic, maybe of something of the larger whole. So I think that, uh, you know, I've just seen two episodes, those are the only two that have dropped so far as we're, as we're taping now. Um, and I really do think so far from what I've seen, um, the miniseries does capture that. It captures the mindset of these guys. Uh, it captures the interaction, I think, very, very well. Um, the the CGI, you know, I mean, at this late date, it's hard to, to portray B-17s and portray the air war and all that. The advantage they had when they uh, made Memphis Bell 30-some-odd years ago, there were still some B-17s they could have and take off. And we don't quite have that as much now. So given those limitations... I thought it looked pretty darn good, uh, you know, in terms of like showing the aircraft taking off um, in in the first episode, um, you know, showing um, a, a, a crash landing, you know, which I thought was was very well done. And I'm given to understand, I think they uh, in terms of like the, the tight shots of the crews, I mean, they had mock ups that the, they built and I'm no expert on this aspect of filmmaking, but uh, they had the mock ups. And I thought that when you look at like the, the, the those particular sets or whatever we'll call them. They really did reflect what the inside of a B seventeen looked like, um, and how constricted it was. Yeah, cramped. I think is the uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> is the word yeah, you would I mean, apply. I know. I mean, I, it's just amazing to me how these guys even got around in there. And granted, people weren't quite as big back then. True, but at the <laughs> same true. time, 
you, you don't have to be very big in order to, to be cramped in there. And it, there was a couple of shots that I've seen that it, it occurred to me. I was like, boy, that's really true to life. Um, the, a shot of a co-pilot, you know, the, the, uh, the pilot on the right side of the, the, the cockpit. Um, and you're looking through, looking from the outside through in the window, uh, and you could see like the, the pilot's face is is very close to the <laughs> to the to the the plexiglass. I mean, it, it's it's just that cramped. And I thought that's exactly right. Um, that's I think how they did that really were. well. I enjoy I enjoyed seeing. I mean, they went they had a fantastic scene where the the planes are going through their pre flight check and firing up the engines and getting ready to take off on the first mission. And they cut between all the different crews as they did all these different processes. And I thought that was an interesting inclusion because I imagine as a writer, as an aviation writer, if you went to your director and said, I want to do a full six minute sequence that shows them firing up the plane, flicking all the switches and turning all the dials, he would have gone, yeah, no, we're just going to show the planes taking off. So I, I thought details like that was really interesting. What did you think they didn't get quite right in those first couple of episodes? Um, you know, not that much stood out to me. It's like when I, when I go to like the didn't get quite right, if something's good, like this is clearly, yeah, sometimes it stands right out to you and you're like, oh my God, how could they have done that? There's nothing yeah. like that. So I think it's probably going to have to be in the, 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 the probably the fourth, fifth, sixth viewing, whatever it will be when we really <laughs> begin to nitpick, um, that maybe some of the markers aren't right and the designators or maybe some of the, the in, insides of the buildings at Thorpe Abbott's or something along those lines. But, um, you know, not, not a lot stood out to me in terms of blatant inaccuracies. Now, controversy now that's a different matter um because there's there's a in the second episode there's uh, a discussion so we say between uh, some RAF crewmen and some of the American crewmen about the differences in uh, nighttime bombing versus day bombing and tension between Brits and Americans and all those kinds of things that certainly did happen um that you have to include I think but of course we're so sensitive in the in these latter years that I, that I know that's going to stir up some trouble of course and and well, let's, but that's just the way things were at the time you know well, let's talk so. a little bit about that because I, I think that's an interesting one it is here in my notes I do want to ask you about that the the relationship between uh the the Royal Air Force and the US Army Air Forces obviously you know it, it's something that tends it's come up in just about every one of these sort of Spielberg Hanks collaborations they can't help but seem to put in a little bit of a dig at the Brits I don't know why that is but um <laughs> Um, talk, talk to us. Let's talk about. Let's get onto the real history now, away from the the um, the miniseries a little bit. Um, what was that relationship like between the RAF and the US Army Air Forces? I mean, it truly was tense, um, and it's it's tense at the the sort of senior leader and and um, national leader um, aspect of things because they disagree about how to implement strategic bombing. Uh, of course, the British famously have gone to nighttime area bombing. Um, just sort of holding up their hands and saying, all right, well, we can't begin to bomb accurately. And it's just too deadly to operate over Germany in the, in the daylight skies. Uh, and we just, we, this is what we can do. This is what the technology allows us to do. And by the way, the Germans have done this to our cities. So let's give it to them, you know, in, in full and better measure. And I totally understand that. Um, although it has tremendous moral dimensions, uh, the Americans come in perhaps with something of a, I think more optimistic point of view, characteristically kind of American of saying, Oh, the old world doesn't get it. We're going to, we've got a new way. Um, you know, we're, we're going to overfly in the day and we really don't want to kill innocent people. We just want to destroy Germany's capacity to resist and we can hit. Was, was that an official, targets. was that an official position that they wanted to limit civilian casualties? Or was it's that just a, a, handy, a handy byproduct of more accurate bombing? It's really more a handy byproduct, but it's, it's <laughs> something that's nice to say. And I do think that, 
it's sort of the, you know, like when we say ideally we would do X, Y, Z, I think it's in that category. What really matters is destroying Germany's capacity to make war and to the, the army air forces hope um, to, to avoid a ground campaign like in world war one. And so this is one thing that's a little different from the American point of view versus the, the British. I mean, the Royal air force has its independence. It doesn't have to worry about being tied to a grand ground army, the way the army air forces do in world war two. So that's a big agenda of, of all the, uh, AAF senior leaders is to to get that independence, and they thought the major way to do it was to show what air power could do, that perhaps it could win the war. And they're almost like evangelists in a way of feeling they have this kind of new way of things to, to save us. And, and uh, they oversell a great product is what I've often said, because, you know, <laughs> they're not able to win the war via air alone. And that remains true, I think, 80 years later, in my opinion. But uh, um, so at the senior level, that's the tension. At the crew level, it's the, the natural rivalry. I mean, these are young men, um, fighting oriented. Um, they are aggressive, some of them, and, and cocksure, especially the Americans. Um, and they're coming into someone else's country. And I think that uh, many RAF crewmen were going to resent that. Uh, you know, the, the, these interlopers uh, competing for women and with because they had more money anyway and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So there's I think when you have young men in different groups, there's always that natural tension there that could lead to fights. And you add alcohol to the mix. And we all know aviators were very big on uh, sampling alcohol, shall we say. Um, <laughs> you were just you were going to have some of that. But I, I really do believe that if we're looking at it in the broader sweep, um, there's a tremendous amount of respect between American and British air crew as people who were facing a lot of danger, um, you know, that they were Pro- together in, in that, that outlook. Probably that biggest distinction. I mean, what, what you've described there is a really fascinating um, moral um, difference, so really a different positioning of what they were trying to do between the, the British and the Americans. Um, probably the most telling example of the distinction between the two forces was daylight versus nighttime bombing talk to us about that in terms of what that actually meant for the crews in terms of what they were trying to achieve and and did they meet their aims with the the differences between daylight and nighttime i mean somewhat you know because their aim ultimately at least from an american point of view is to basically win the war through the air so in that sense they don't but if there's a lesser aim of winning air superiority air supremacy making other operations possible like the normandy invasion and all that of course i mean absolutely they do uh, from the earlier in the war British perspective, I mean, they want payback against the Germans. And this is the only way they could really bring the war to the continent uh, on, a, on a major level, of course, besides SOE and commandos here and there and naval ops. OK, you know, so I'm speaking in a, in a more general term. This was the biggest uh, punch you could land on, on the Nazis um, before the Americans come into play. And the Brits and the Americans and the Canadians together mobilize some pretty substantial armies, of course. But. Um, the, the, the Americans, I mean, this whole idea of precision strategic bombing during the day, um, is going to lead you in a more dangerous place than, than perhaps bomber command. Now, from a bomber command crew point of view, you are not necessarily working as closely together as a team because you obviously don't want tight formations at night. Um, and so you're kind of flying over wherever you can see to go, whatever the target could be and unleashing whatever you got. Uh, of course, night flying is terrifying, too, and dangerous in terms of just taking off and landing and navigating. You know, they have all these challenges the Americans don't have as much. Um, the Americans sort of 
um, cycle of life is that if you've got a mission, you're probably getting up at about three or 4 AM, something like that. Uh, and then you go through, you know, the, the, the breakfast and, and the briefing. And then, you know, so you're, you're looking at probably about a 10 hour plus day, 10 to 12 hours by the time you're up and go fly that mission, come back sometimes longer. Um, it's, a, it's a very long go and, and extraordinarily stressful uh, for both, of course. Uh, but I, I think maybe even especially at this early stage of the war, because we've just seen the first two episodes of Masters of the Air that, you know, show this earlier stage, this early stage of the war. I mean, um, the percentages are against you in terms of survival. So it's, it's very it's really terrifying on that level. Did you have the opportunity, John, to speak to veterans from the uh, from the U.S. Army Air Forces? Yeah, tons. Um, absolutely tons of them. Had a, kind of an embarrassment of, of source material and riches um, <laughs> in that regard. And that's so the, my, my first book was a, was a dissertation. It was originally my dissertation. And it was called Deadly Brotherhood of the American Combat Soldier in World War II. And it was about the ground combat troops of all theaters, of course. And uh, so sort of the next natural step was to go to the aviation side with, with Deadly Sky. And so in that process, that's like the late 90s or so, um, you can imagine how many veterans were around. And one of the things that was really neat, having been like a ground pounder historian, to see the aviators, that they could keep diaries and see it on a major level. And when it was fresh in their minds, you know, and so you'd have these really neat sources contemporary sources from the time. And then you could talk to and get to know and interview people in the latter years, because of course there were things they didn't know at the time that they had better perspective longer term. They had great veterans associations, usually by the bomb group um, or the fighter group, you know, whatever, whatever it would be. And those were so vibrant. There were so many people to, to interview at the university of Tennessee, where I got my doctorate. Um, that was what we did. We, we interviewed a lot of veterans, not just, you know, aviation veterans, all, all American World War II veterans that we could. Uh, so there's a really good cross-section of this stuff. And then one of the other things that really helped is that right around that time, the mighty 8th Air Force Heritage Museum came into being at Savannah. I'm not sure if you've been there, Matt, but if, if you no, haven't, I, haven't. I highly recommend it. It's the most amazing museum just on its face, you know, in terms of... There's of, so uh, many displays. of these incredible museums in America, very specific to specific yeah. groups, but like everything, you know, you guys do with Remembrance, they're extraordinary. The ones I've been to, I think, you know, any one of them, we'd be proud to call our number one museum in Australia. <laughs> and then you <laughs> guys have amazing. you guys have hundreds of them scattered over, probably thousands oh, scattered over the whole country. Really so, lucky. Really yeah. lucky. So, and well, tell us one, about that one specifically. Yeah, this one's just brilliant, you know, in terms of the displays and um, the, there's like a, a chapel that replicates an Air Force chapel, 8th Air Force chapel. There's markers in a memorial garden to pretty much every bomb group, every fighter group, you, you know, every unit you could imagine. But what's really of most interest to an historian like me is all the primary source material that they gathered. So like, anything you could imagine of memoirs, diaries, letters, oral histories, um, gatherings, like reunion groups. I mean, whatever it would be, just all that firsthand material, uh, in addition to a lot of the documentation uh, of the Eighth Air Force in the war. And so really, that's a tremendous lodestone that I had that I then sort of fleshed out with the other theaters. I mean, 15th Air Force, which always felt like it was in the shadow of the 8th. I totally understand that. Why? Um, and so I tried to have a lot about the 15th Air Force and the Pacific, 
you know, Marine aviators, uh, Army Air Forces in the Pacific, which are enormous. Um, we talk about that a lot. I mean, you and I, you and I, when we spoke at the festival, spoke about the Pacific. We spoke about Guadalcanal. That's something that gets completely overlooked. Those incredible photos of B-17s flying over New Guinea and, you know, there's a landing strip on Guadalcanal, which was just for B-17s. And I mean, that's not an environment that those, you know, that those guys could comfortably operate in, you know, the same way they could in Europe. Obviously, they're facing less opposition, but still... That's a tough haul out of those jungle airfields. So yeah, I oh, you know yeah. without yeah. verging too far off the topic, I think it's important that we acknowledge, you know, the contribution of these guys in all the theaters, which are major. I mean, because air power and its projection was so important, no matter where we are. Uh, and if we're thinking about the average Pacific theater guy, you know, he has to fly these really difficult missions. Maybe not as deadly as like an Eighth Air Force mission, but still not safe. And especially flying over the Pacific, over water, over so much water, that's very problematic. And then you don't really have a lot to look forward to once you come back. If you're based in New Guinea or on Guadalcanal or, or you know, even Saipan or something, it's not like there's pubs to go to, uh, like there would be in England, in East Anglia, which becomes like Little America fused with Britain, you know, and then in Italy too, which is which has some nice places to go at times, and uh, you know, and, and more infrastructure, more civilian interaction, you know, all those kinds of things that, that help make this, the experience somewhat bearable, I guess. Um, you know, because the aviators, it's it's very much an on and off kind of experience. You're on, you're on that mission and you're fighting for your life. And then when you're not, there's a lot of things you can be doing uh, and getting into. I mean, there's a lot of fun things you can be doing. And I think that's a little bit different maybe in the Pacific where you just don't always have that outlet. Let's talk a little bit about what the, uh, the the U.S. Army Air Forces are doing in the European theater. Let's let's talk about why they were there, you know, what they were doing, what a day looked like for these crews. I mean, the first thing is we've been talking about the word strategic bombing. Obviously, we mean bombing that's operating as its own force. They're, they're making their own decisions about what they're going to bomb and how they're going to fight their war as opposed to tactical bombing, which is supporting ground troops, etc. So let's, let's give us a bit of a, a, bit, a bit more of an overview of, of, of how the U- U.S. Army Air Forces came to be in Europe and, uh, and, and, uh, and what, they, uh, what they did when they were there. So these air forces are really the priority for American grand strategy on a lot of levels. Of course, the, the, the Brits and the Americans have agreed on Germany first or Europe first. So that means our aviation priority is going to go to Europe as well. And the hope is, as I mentioned, from an aviation point of view, that this is the way you can win the war. Uh, and at a minimum, sort of open up a, a now a second front, as we thought of it, because the Soviets are fighting, you know, most of the, the German armed forces at that point. We're like, well, what can we do? Um, and, and the idea that you can bring Germany to its knees by destroying its industries in precision daylight bombing, which is possible because of the Norden bomb site, of course, which is very advanced for the time, though we would look back at it now and say that's not very accurate bombing when maybe, what, 10 to 20% of your bombs are getting within half a mile of your target or, you know, something along those lines. It varies. But um, you've got that. And then, of course, tight formation flying which will tighten your bomb pattern and allow you to protect your bombers with uh, 50 caliber machine guns. You got a lot of gunners aboard a B-17 or aboard a B-24, which is, by the way, a more ubiquitous aircraft globally. Uh, more, more, uh, it's the most heavily produced four-engine bomber for the Americans, but the B-17 is the most famous, and I think that'll be solidified by Masters of the Air. I mean, there's no question. Um, it was like a, but, the B, there was a B-24 rolling off the assembly line every hour and a half or something. By the end of the war, yeah, at the Willow Run plant just outside of Detroit. It's absolutely incredible. And that was Ford, you know, running running that. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's um, so 
by the time you're into 1943, um, this priority has really started to play out. And by priority, I'm talking about manpower, too. Um, at this early stage of the war, for the U.S. Army at least, um, what the Army thought of is like the quality manpower, people who were scoring really high on the Army general classification test. Uh, the Army Air Forces tend to get more than their share of them. Uh, and this this is, I think, and it, now we're just in the realm of my opinion here, this is an American tendency uh, from that day to this to say, okay, well, war means we use our technology, we use our our, our air power, our sea power, we'll fight at distance, and that's how we will achieve our strategic objectives. And what we almost always find out is we need to tussle on the ground. That's really where we're going to have an arena of decision. We need these other things. They're tremendously important, especially to project our power overseas, especially sea power. Um, but, you know, in the end, the fighting has to be done on the ground. In World War II, they go through that same kind of process. And so it's really not until later into 43, 44 that we start to figure out we're going to have to start channeling a lot of manpower into the ground combat forces that we weren't thinking of quite as much before. So um, in the in the the way it all plays out is you have tremendous amounts of quality manpower uh, that are going to ground combat units globally. But initially it's the army air forces that have a call on them. But so it's not really just a matter of the crews, of course, and producing the aircraft, but maintaining it all, all the logistics of maintaining it. uh, Obviously that plays out through the ground crews that are the unsung part of this whole thing. Um, that these guys are out there on the flight line night after night after night repairing these aircraft in ways that are almost like performing miracles. Because these are very durable aircraft, and they get engines shot away. They get, you know, uh, the skin of the the aircraft, you know, just completely crushed, you know, by by flak or other ordnance or, you know, whatever it would be. Yet they still somehow fly, and many of them are recoverable and salvageable. And so, you know, that in addition to the fuel, the bombs, the coordination, I just think it's amazing looking back on it, um, how advanced it really was and, and how quickly all this is coming together, the aerial doctrine and, and, the, and the maintenance and, and the, the tactics or whatever it would be. It's just so mind-blowing to me, uh, much less attracting quality air crew, training them up, getting them ready to, to, to fly in any semblance of these duties. I mean, these are, these are really young people. Um, if you were, if you were 23 or 24 on an eighth air force bomb crew, um, you were probably on the old side. Uh, and if you were in your late twenties, I mean, forget it. Uh, these are 19, 20, 21 year olds. I mean, these are, these are guys who were in high school a couple of years ago and they're flying these big high performance aircraft how were they? Um, how were they sourcing these guys? Were they, were they volunteering specifically to be flyers, or were they picking yeah. guys and suggesting that they join the air force? Yeah. They, so the, the the advantage that the air force had is they were sort of the glamour branch, and and this is an entire generation of of, of young people, not just men, a lot of women too, who, who had grown up just enthralled with aviation uh, because it was new. I mean, for us this latter year, you know, cynical, burnt out old guys. I mean, aviation had been around forever by the time you and I came along, Matt, you know, and so imagine younger people today, you know, it's all old hat. In those days, you know, you're a generation on or so from the Wright brothers, right? Yeah, so th- what, 35 years at the start of the war-ish yeah, since yeah, roughly. man first flew <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in, a powered, so, in a powered craft. And now you're <laughs> flying B-17s and Spitfires and Mustangs. 
So you, re- yeah, you've really seen a lot of major advances in the aircraft just in that short period of time. And um, so it was the kind of thing where a lot of these young people coming of age had, had really been enthralled with the idea of flying and that they maybe could do that. And, and so now you have this demand for them, you know, for, for military uh, flyers and other kinds of aviators, and, and it just sort of coalesces. And so um, they are volunteers. Um, you know, they, now many of them maybe are going to be drafted into the army or whatever. And, uh, but, but at the same time, in terms of wanting to become a fighter pilot or a bomber crewman or whatever, you're a volunteer. And so when you had your AGCT and you wanted to do that, they would send you on to a classification center in Nashville, Tennessee. And they would, they, there was a different set of tests they would give you to figure out your aptitude. Uh, and of course, most who went there wanted to be pilots, of course, and, and a large number of them wanted to be fighter pilots. They were the ultimate glamour guys and whatever. Um, but of course, many of them are going to have to come to terms whether they're really going to do either be a gunner, a radio operator. Um, top turret gunner was a really interesting dude because he's also the flight engineer. So he really has to be quite mechanically oriented and it has to be kind of he's kind of an onboard crew chief in, in a way. Um, and then if you're a ball turret gunner, you've got to be diminutive. I mean, you're not going to put your six foot four football player in that ball turret. <laughs> so there's a physical dimension to this too. And then, you know, you got a lot of people who are sort of officer material, but not really good aptitude for flying. And so a number of them are going to up as bombardiers and navigators and, and, and whatnot. So all of this is, if we're thinking about it, looking back now, all that classification and training, it happens at a lightning speed in a way when you consider that already by the spring of 43, you know, we've got what, um, you know, almost two dozen bomb groups that are going to be in play in Europe, uh, in North Africa somewhere. Uh, and ultimately obviously going to, going to grow a lot more from there. So it's, it comes from that national priority to make this happen because they see it as, as so incredibly important and a new way to make war that didn't exist before that could perhaps bring, uh, you know, ultimate strategic results. Let's uh, you touch there on the the numbers of bomb groups. Well, let's talk some numbers. I mean, how how many how how large was uh, was the the combined air force? I mean, we say U.S. Army air forces. Maybe we should explain that as well. Why the word yeah. army is in the middle of the the air force term? Yeah, because um, the, the the air force was part of the army in those days. So by World War II, to kind of boil it down as simple as possible, you have three major components of the U.S. Army. Army Service Forces, Army Ground Forces, that's like where your infantry and armor divisions are part of, and then Army Air Forces, which basically is its own thing with its four-engine bomb groups, its two-engine bomb groups, its fighter groups, its transport groups, you know, all that stuff. Um, So it's its own animal in a way, uh, and yet it's still administratively part of the Army, and that's the tension that's really there for the whole war. And of course, as many, you know, in the audience know, the Air Force gets its independence in 1947. Um, You know, you have that transition, but it's post-war. So ultimately, like even the the 8th Air Force, you'll have three um, divisions, major divisions, uh, two B-17 and one B-24, each of which I think probably has something in the order of about 20 or so groups, something like that. And I'm only just kind of off the top of my head here. The point is there's dozens of them uh, by 1944 and 45. And each group usually has four squadrons of about, oh, you know, anywhere from 14 to 22 aircraft apiece, something like that, just to give you a sense. Each one of those bombers probably has a crew of any, depending on when we're talking about in the war, 
anywhere from nine to, to 11 crewmen, maybe something like that. And why does it vary? Because there were times when you, you could have a combined bomber navigator. There were times when you didn't need certain gunners and times when you needed more, you know, so that really varied in the course of the war. But it gave you a sense of the, the manpower involved, too, because for every flyer we've got up there, there's probably, you know, three or four ground crewmen of, of some sort. And not always just the crewmen, but the, the uh, officer staff to do the planning and and uh, all of the various things you have in any military unit, personnel, intel, ops, supply, civil affairs, you know, same kind of structure you would have in ground units you've got in the aviation units, too. So the, the enterprise is just massive this whole thing i see why you say that east anglia became little america when you start talking about thousands and thousands of americans you know the whole overpaid oversexed and over here <laughs> philosophy <laughs> That's let's really touch on that briefly out. what was what was yeah. the relationship like between the u.s uh, service people in england and the, the the local population i mean i think overall in, in any fair assessment the relationship was really good um, and I, I, this is what I find so absorbing about it all these years later, really the human story. Um, I mean, I think the planes are interesting and all that, but I'm not necessarily a plane wonk in, in terms of like my own research. What interested me is the, the crew experience and, and those relationships that people had with locals, um, many of whom still remembered them. All those years later, I love going to East Anglia because there's that kind of American imprint on it, which I find fascinating as, as, a, as a U.S. historian constantly trying to figure out more about my country. A lot of times the best way to figure it out is look it through the lens of other people, you know, and, and I think in East Anglia, you really see that the little America where you see um, th- these these crewmen and, and uh, ground crewmen, whether flight or ground out there uh, in pubs or in restaurants with host families are inviting people to their bases for, for, you know, Christmas celebrations or dances or whatever it would be. And of course, honestly, I mean, they're mainly interested in the young women. I mean, that's primarily what, what a lot of these guys are interested in, but not exclusively. I was going to say the, you know? the imprint, uh, the American imprint is uh, somewhat genetically as well. Oh, definitely. There were a lot of, a lot of dalliances <laughs> between the dashing and You can understand that. I mean, I've read a lot about this in times of war. It's a fascinating aspect of war is that young people, when faced with danger, tend to live on the edge. And part of that is is doing things that they probably wouldn't have done in peacetime. And, you know, this this talk about as Berlin was falling, you know, young people coupling in the tear garden. And, you know, it's it's it's, it's just course. this it's I know. It's just when when <laughs> life could extinguish itself at any moment, both for the local people who are under the threat of invasion and bombing mm-hmm. from the Germans, but also obviously the airmen, you know, there's gonna be a spark. There's oh, yeah. gonna be living life to its fullest. And that did result in a lot of romances. And, oh, know, it did. And, and, you know, and babies and, and you will have, exactly. It. Well, and that's, you know, it's interesting, Matt, is like that's happening in the States too, like uh, societally in, in terms of a lot more like quickie relationships and, you know, different kinds of uh, expectations culturally than maybe what you would have had in the past. And of course, you're definitely going to see that play out in a military setting and especially in East Anglia where, I mean, 8th Air Force facing the kind of you know, nihilistic casualty kind of situation it is throughout a lot of the war. Uh, you do have a lot of people really living on the edge. And then in addition to a very friendly population that's similar culturally, because remember, these 8th Air Force crewmen are almost uniformly white. Um, so you have that kind of similarity too, because of our segregation in a way. So it's, so it's something of the underside on some levels too. But um, you've got a lot of similarities there. And 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 it you were... Lifestyle-wise, you could pull this off. If I am an infantryman, um, 
sleeping in a a foxhole with two feet of water uh, and in mud and I'm hungry and I'm desperate and fighting to the death on the ground. I don't know that I'm in every bit as much a romantic mood as if I'm, you know, a bomber crewman who does my bid over Germany for 10 hours today and then is looking to blow off steam and I'm not on a mission for three more days and I've got pubs to go to and there's women who really want to meet me because I have money. I'm asgotic in a way. I have cool uniforms, you know, whatever it would be. And and their men are gone, you know, so that you can see where it's just sort of this perfect storm in a way. Um, and I, so we shouldn't be surprised at that at all. And I, I, I fully expect that the, that, um, I mean, it, that's of course in the, in the book, um, masters of the air, a lot of that too. And, and in mine, and I think you're going to probably see that play out in the miniseries, of course, too, as it should. Big it's part something of the story. that I think we should save that for a separate podcast, probably. But to touch on it, it's a fascinating <laughs> chapter. You know, I, I I always say to people that we talk about the sexual revolution as happening in the 60s. I, I think it happened in the 40s. And Definitely. I think it's important that we look at this in the right way. We, with this, I mean, I don't want to use that overused term, empowering for women. But I, we should not look at this as innocent young maidens who were overwhelmed by the glamorous flyers and the glamorous you know, army captains that came in. These were young women who were contributing to the war effort, a lot of them, and they were um, liberated in a way. They were, they were making decisions about their own life. And, and, you know, if they wanted to meet up with a young airman and, and have a romance, then good on them. You know, I think we, we far too often paint this picture of the, the, the dainty, you know, I suppose because it, it was all our grandmothers, but we paint this image of the young maiden <laughs> in the 1940s who basically was overcome and couldn't help herself. I, I think we should look at it very differently. And there's some great research that's being done into the, obviously, the the huge contribution of women during wartime and the liberation and empowerment that came with that. They were not, uh, you know, being carried along on a wave here. Women were making decisions that were changing the course of the war. And, you know, maybe that's something we should talk about in another podcast. But when we see mm-hmm. that, when we see the airmen, you know, having a, having a romance with a young lady, it's, 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 it's both parties are involved in a really important way. So it's a, so it's a fascinating street. part of the story. We see it's, it in Australia as well. In I think uh, oh, I think the first uh, the first uh, ship to leave Melbourne. You know, everyone saw the Pacific, the previous miniseries, and the, the whole episode dedicated to Melbourne. And I think that something like the first bridal ship that left, uh, you know, during the time the Marine Corps were in Melbourne had a, had more than a thousand young Australian women who uh, you know who were leaving. Yeah, to, well, to go well, their their uh, their US uh, the US bow back to America. Incredible. About about a million Americans either passed through Australia or were stationed there in the course of the war. There were 10,000 plus Australian war brides who came back home. There were um, American war husbands, we'll call them, who settled in Australia after the war, too. Uh, And so, I mean, I think that's lesser known. We all know Britain, you know, all the oversexed, overpaid over here, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of the same dynamic playing out in Australia, too, on some levels. Um, Just maybe not quite as many people, but it's still an enormous number of people and it has a cultural impact. And and so to your point about, um, you know, uh, women as as such huge players in in what happens in the outcome of the war. I mean, you see that uh, in terms of pilots, too, with the Women's Air Force Service pilots or WASPs. Now, they're not serving overseas with the 8th Air Force or anything like that. Uh, But there is this kind of societal recognition that, well, you know, we need to mobilize women uh, usually the idea is to free up men for combat or whatever, but nonetheless, that's very different than the past because so like that, that aviation zeitgeist women are, are hugely into this too, you know, wanting to be pilots and, and wanting to fly and be air crew and whatever. It's just, they're, they're working within the gender realities of the time, but that's 
that's more sort of liberating, I guess we'll call it, than what you'd had before, much less now the social and sexual relationships too, uh, whether it's an Anglo-American relationship in East Anglia or a relationship in, uh, you know, military base X, Y, or Z, wherever it is in the U.S. It's the same, something of the same dynamic playing out. So in a way, young people, um, I, I don't necessarily, we'd say rebelling against the past, but sort of revising the past and, and creating their own kind of new cultural expectations. I totally agree with you about the, the sexual revolution. And I did maybe even in this country, we could trace it to the 1920s on some levels when we have more automation and mobility and freedom for young people to be out on their own, maybe than in the past. World War II generate World War II era veterans would have grown up in that environment on some level, especially in urban and from urban areas. Uh, and might have expected to operate that way overseas. And I think uh, the Flyers certainly are a classic example of that. Uh, that's something of the culture anyway, where there is that kind of, it's a newer service too. Um, well, I'm going to so write that down for a, a future chat with you, John, as we'll talk more yeah. about these social implications. Because I, I, I'm like you, I find that fascinating. War is a study of people. And yeah, exactly. uh, it's it's fascinating, some of these things. And perhaps we it's easy to think about a B-17 or a Sherman tank or a, you know, a grunt in the mud with a rifle. Um, but there's so much, so many aspects of this that that, that came through socially as well. Yeah. So we should talk about that in the future. Um, one of the things when you were talking there that I touched on that I hadn't thought about before is the way things are depicted in in uh, in movies and versus the reality. And something I noticed in Masters of the Air, it definitely is a glamour service. The the uh, the the Air Force is seen as a very glamorous service. And compare that to something like a movie like Fury, where we had the tank crews. And the relationships, I mean, I know that was Germany as well, so there's obviously going to be a whole, you know, a different dynamic going on there. But the, you know, the way those tank crews were, were depicted in that movie compared to the way that movies depict the Air Force. So I think there's, there is a certain reality in that. You know, those guys that are going to be covered in oil and riding around in Sherman are going to be very different from the, the blokes that were, in some cases, handpicked to, to go up in those aircraft. Yeah, I mean, it starts out glamorous. And you know what I think it's ironic about that, Matt, is that, if, in a way, when we think about the ground combat forces, the tankers are the glamour boys of the ground combat services, right? <laughs> we're not infantry. We're a, we got a new kind of weapon here, and those stodgy infantrymen don't understand the new kind of blitzkrieg warfare and all. And then what do they end up doing? Like, like what you see in Fury, usually supporting the infantry, by the way. But it is unglamorous. Well, so too with the airmen. So many of them are attracted to the Air Force because of the glamour they perceive, especially being a pilot, which, of course, had huge prestige to it, obviously. And um, and the, what do they find once they, they go up there? They find that this isn't this isn't glamorous at all. It's horrible. They're fighting for their lives. They're, they're fighting in um, conditions in which it's minus 35 degrees, minus 50 um, you know, in which you, you basically have to report in every 10 minutes, lest your oxygen line get, get clogged with your exhalation, the moisture from it. Um, they find that, uh, you know, people are, are peeing themselves and, and soiling themselves with terror over this whole thing. Um, they're finding that they're up in the air for eight hours, 10 hours, uh, you know, fighting flack and, and struggling with that emotionally, feeling so vulnerable. They're struggling with the morality of it all. Uh, the Munster Raid is a really good example in October 1943 when the U.S. Air Force decides, you know what, maybe we should dehouse workers and bomb German civilians. Maybe we, maybe the RAF is on to something. And, you know, now you got to struggle with that, the, the morality of that, too. And, and I mean, it ends up as this this sort of slog um, that the, the bomber crewmen and even some of the fighter pilots, too, who will find out 
this war isn't about me being an ace. It's about me supporting others, whether it's ground pounders, you know, which I give close air support or bombers that I have to escort as bodyguards, you know, back and forth and sacrifice my life to save theirs, you know. So they find that this is just as deadly, just as zero sum as war would be on the ground in that respect. So it's it's a little bit disillusioning to some. And we only knew this in hindsight, but the U.S. Army Air Forces would suffer more casualties than the entire Marine Corps during the war. So, I mean, let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about the psychological effects, because it's something in the first episode of Masters of the Air they depicted Mm -hmm. really well, is that it doesn't matter how much training you do. I think they even used the line, after hundreds of hours of training, we were now finally going to go into combat. So they made that point. The bit that struck me was, two things that struck me was firstly, again, no spoilers, but I don't think this is going to spoil it for anyone. <laughs> firstly, when that first, you know, flak shell explodes next to you and you hear the shrapnel pinging off the plane and sometimes coming through the skin of the plane, there's no training in the world that can prepare you for that. Nope. But also when they got back from that first mission, the officers had a hard time controlling them. The men were a bit out of control. They were, yeah. you know, they were yelling at each other. They were fighting. They were hyped up. And they were trying to herd them into a truck to get them to the, uh, you know, interrogation room to debrief them after the flight. And they were having a hard time controlling these guys. After uh, Guys that have had, as we say, hundreds of hours of training, one mission was enough to really shake them up. So, I mean, I know that this is the thing that you and I are probably most fascinated in the whole story. Talk to us about the psychological effects of being an airman in that situation. I mean, the psychological effects were so profound, um, so enervating uh, on so many levels um, because... I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, in the Army Air Forces, in the 8th Air Force too, you had hope, I guess, because they gave you a, a tour of duty. Um, we don't have that in the infantry in World War II, typically. You you continue fighting until you can't anymore, and we all know what that means, usually. Um, so in this case, you'd have that tour of duty to look forward to, but then, when, like you said, you see what it's like when you're up there. Um, and so it, a lot of these guys who had come into the uh, into his bomber crew and his pilots now in a position of command responsibility hadn't really been chosen for their command and leadership ability it's their piloting ability and so they're gonna have to figure out how do i lead a crew how do i control guys what do we do once we're on the ground after this with trying to stay right mentally and flying our missions and so and you know so they're the debriefing is part of that it's also decompression from what you just experienced over those deadly skies of, of, of Germany and elsewhere. Um, the Then there's the whole idea of, well, how am I going to get through this tour of duty? I mean, if you're an 8th Air Force bomber crewman in 1943, the percentages say you won't. You can't. You're going down at some point. Doesn't mean you're going to be dead. You might be captured. That's not so good either. But think about dealing with that mentally. Somehow, most of these guys are very much results oriented people and very many of them are very ambitious and kind of upwardly mobile. A lot of them come from pretty tough backgrounds economically. And the, being in the Army Air Forces is a leg up, you know, a way to to to, to get somewhere in the world. And then you're up against this. Um, and I, I think it's profoundly difficult. I think that not just the Eighth Air Force, but all of the combat uh, flyers and all the various units all over the globe deal with some variation of that same kind of psychological problem of maintaining the morale, um, you know, and, and still fulfilling the mission somehow. This plays out ultimately in our popular memory in that, that term catch 22, you know, which portrays the 15th air force, not the eighth, 
but it's something of the same kind of thing. It's like, what happens um, when they start raising the number of missions? Can we ever finish? Um, how does this work? And, you know, how can I maintain my sanity? Um, this was, this was something very difficult that they're kind of learning on the go, just like, um, just like in the ground forces, they're, they're kind of learning how to treat combat fatigue throughout the war. It's kind of the same for the bomber crewmen too. And they, 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 they ultimately settled on this idea of, well, if we think an R and R in the middle of the tour can really help. And they would send you to a mansion somewhere, uh, that some nice, wealthy person in England had donated and um, it would basically be, you know, golf and ping pong and tennis and decompression and interaction with red cross workers. Now these were women um, who were volunteers uh, and it was all supposed to be very platonic relationships. Many of them were 10, 15 years older than the typical air crew. Um, And, and so this was as questionable value because eventually you have to go back. Till now what? You know, I mean, and so that's just constant struggle. That's, that was one of the things I found really fascinating with the diaries, uh, because that's happening in real time for these guys. Like, how am I getting through? Here's how I feel today when we just had a milk run versus uh, the Schweinfurt raid or something. And and, and, and then you, maybe, you know, this person 50 years later, it's a very different person than that young 19 year old writing in the diary, you know, so. I think the morale side of this is everything uh, on so many levels, the human side of it, how people deal with it. And of course the famous way they're going to deal with it is, is uh, to bet off steam, usually alcohol, um, sometimes sports athletics is a big part of that, which you could do um, because you've got land and you've got time and all that, but also women. I mean, it's, um, I mean, that, that is, those are the classic the age, things. The age old formula. <laughs> it, really, it really is. And I, I think, so I think there's a, productive purpose of that if we're thinking of it militarily that the crewmen need this and and the ground crewmen kind of need it too um <laughs> we don't we don't remember that as readily now maybe they're not going and risking their lives over germany but sometimes their base are being bombed uh so or and then later on we have v1s and v2s um they could be in danger from that but it's not just a matter of that too it's a matter of um dealing with the, the mental strain of of keeping these planes in the air uh, in such a way that it's safe as possible for your crew. And if you don't, you could be responsible for air crew losing their lives. Imagine that kind of stress. Well, also they're, um, they're having, they're seeing the aftermath of these raids as well. You know, people are being shot up and arms and legs blown off and stuff inside the plane. And these are the guys that are going and repair it and put it all back together. Yeah. They're seeing a very, they're having a very visceral experience of, of, of what this is all about. So definitely. Great it's it's just fascinating. One thing we touched on very briefly was the moral aspect. And I know we've got to wrap this up soon, but I don't want to go before we talk about the moral aspect of strategic bombing because mm-hmm. we live in a different time. I know from the RAF perspective, the idea of Bomber Command has been hugely controversial. There, There is a memorial to Bomber Command in Hyde Park in London, but it, it only opened in the early 2000s. I think it's only been there 20 years. And it has a memorial on it to the victims of bombing as well. And so, you know, we, and we note that Winston Churchill at the start of the war said that the, you know, the Bomber Command was the most important asset that the British had to win the war. And in his victory speech in, you know, 1945, he didn't, he didn't mention Bomber Command. They didn't come up. So just talk briefly, should we feel ashamed? Is, you know, is there a moral... Uh, you know, a moral uh, weight that we should carry all these years later about strategic bombing during the Second World War? I mean, I think 
we, we can't get past the moral difficulties of it all. We can't just overlook that the way they would have during the war, you know, doing whatever they could to win it. Um, and I, I totally get why Churchill said that early in the war, because that was the punch Britain could throw, right? I mean, that's that's what they had. So that's fine. But then you end up in these, these other moral dilemmas eventually, because especially because of Arthur Harris's concept of kind of just depopulating the cities. Uh, you know, he would tell you, I don't necessarily want to kill the Germans. I just want to dehouse them and disrupt their whole lives and shut down their whole country that way. And then it'll be more humane in the long run because we'll avoid a big ground war. Now he's wrong um, in, in his strategic concept. Um, the moral dimension is there for all, all these air crew, whether RAF night bombing, whether U.S. during the day, because believe me, we hit plenty of people we wouldn't have wanted to, you know, I mean, plenty of civilians killed. I think, by the way, that's one of the many strengths of Don's book is looking at the civilian experience and melding that with, with the other side of this whole thing. Um, so if I'm thinking just now as an historian, maybe the proper perspective is to understand those moral dilemmas, understand what they had to work with at the time, that maybe we learn lessons all these decades later, and obviously we have much more precision bombing type technology, that we we use it as a cautionary tale and say maybe it's not necessarily appropriate unless we are in a complete existential crisis here uh, to to have those kind of mass bombings or whatever but but we understand maybe why they did that at the time um, so I, I tend to kind of retreat from what I see as either extreme of the of the let's turn Harris into a war criminal and and brand every Allied flyer. A, horrible bloodthirsty baby killer or something you know because there are some people who sort of look at it that way oh or, absolutely ah, or the sort of other side of ah you know it's what they had to do at the time why does everybody look at that now and wonder about it and you shouldn't be hand-wringing it was world war ii and it's all justified uh, i don't know it's sort of in the middle maybe you know and and really for the americans it's more the pacific that we have some of these greater moral dimensions even than europe because of obviously the fire bombings and the atomic bombings of Japan, which it's just, you know, much greater loss of life and destruction and all that. And, and, and so from U.S. perspective, that's where you tend to see some of the more moral hand-wringing versus 8th Air Force or 15th Air Force. Uh, but in the larger dimension, it's all something of the same thing. And, uh, um, you know, so, and I, so I think we should recognize all that because I think the people who had the experience and had to fly these missions, many of them dealt with the same moral dilemmas, you know, and, and had to figure ways to, to, um, to, you know, justify that of themselves. I'll give you a quick anecdotal example. Um, there was one, I think this is in the 492nd bomb group. Um, there was a pilot who, uh, a really good pilot. He was somewhere around his 15th or 20th mission, something like that. And he was having these kind of doubts, you know, it was, it was getting to be tough for him. And, uh, and he could tell himself initially, well, I don't drop the bombs, but obviously that's just, you know, window dressing, you don't have to be the bombardier, be responsible. Right. But, uh, he's, he's telling himself that, and that wasn't good enough. And he's eventually saying, what am I really doing here? What, what is this? What are we accomplishing? Um, what is this justified? Cause I know we're killing civilians and all that. How could this be a good thing in the long run? So he he happens to encounter the chaplain that night when he's drinking. And he sort of runs all this past the chaplain because the chaplain could tell he was troubled. And the chaplain said, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot of immorality in the world. Um, and there's a tremendous problem right now with that. And we are clearly fighting against it. 
And so this is happening and the chaplain is telling him, this is sort of my thing, you know, that I'm the whole moral and God dimension. You let me handle that because I'm grappling with it big time. So in essence, he's telling the pilot when all that fails and it has in our world, now it's time for you to do your thing because that's the only thing left. When you've got a world of immorality and what he's alluding to is the Nazis and everything happening with a conquered Europe. He's saying, if all that fails and it has, now it's time for you to do your, your job. And that's the way we will work this out morally in the end. And that really did help the pilot. It was a really interesting conversation. I think that I think sort of encapsulates a lot of these tougher issues, maybe. Well, John, it's, it's just a fascinating topic. Perhaps uh, once the series is over, we, uh, we can uh, get together again and, uh, and, and review the journey that they took. But, um, mate, uh, your insights are extraordinary. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's got such a broad knowledge of so many aspects of the Second World War. <laughs> I always love sitting down and talking to you, and this has yeah, been absolutely fantastic. So what, what, just very quickly, um, what have you got? What are you working on at the moment? If people want to find out more about you, where can, where can they go? Yeah, I appreciate it, Matt. Um, yeah, I just finished a trilogy about the U.S. Army in the Pacific. Um, so the, the last book in the trilogy just came out in this past year. It's called To the End of the Earth, and it uh, covers 1945. And so now I'm beginning a, a couple of new projects. I'm, I'm doing one, um, a, a kind of audible course for the, the uh, One Dream and the Great Courses uh, about D-Day, about the Normandy invasion. It'll be out in time for the 80th anniversary and then uh, my larger project right now is doing a, uh, a biography of General Matthew Ridgway, who, of course, has a lot of experience in World War II as the 82nd Airborne Division Commander, 18th Airborne Corps, so on and so forth. But he had a much longer career. It was so fascinating um, and I think so impactful. I think he's probably the third most important American general of the 20th century behind only Eisenhower and Marshall, only my opinion. But uh, yeah, so that's all that is keeping me plenty busy these days in addition to the you know the we have ways usa podcast and another one i do called someone talked oh brilliant mate and if can people find you on twitter or facebook or where you know where can they keep up with what you're doing uh you'd be able to find me on both uh just john c mcmanus on facebook and uh at john c mcmanus uh oh, gosh I, I don't know my twitter you you can find me on twitter they'll track you down they'll track you down and my website www.johncmcmanus.com so yeah love to hear from you i appreciate it Brilliant. Well, well, anyone listening to this, um, keep keep tabs on what John's doing because it's always fascinating. And uh, I feel really privileged, John, that we got to catch up for those uh, couple of days over the festival last year. Great. And I look forward to uh, doing it again, either in the US or out here in Australia or maybe in the, in the UK again. But, mate, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, reach out to me as well on Facebook and Twitter. You'll be able to track me down there. And if you want to walk the ground, don't forget, come on a battlefield tour. It's the thing I love more than anything else is getting out there and walking the ground. So if you're listening to this podcast, you want to join us on some of these great battlefields, go to our website at battlefields.com.au. John, thank you for joining us. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.